0: but the Kiss of Ten is such a unique universe and they have such loyal customers and the same people just sort of go every single day and they go to have their smokes and their meetings and, you know, there's, they're really kind of popping off the ones that are still around. But this is all very beautiful stuff, and I'm very excited to go into this deeper, and also to go into sort of like the darkness of the Unification Church, which there's there's much there's a lot of info on. But I do think it is a fascinating sort of uh, side note to the kind of like aesthetic decline of a culture, or sort of like... I don't want to say decline, but the homogenization of it as well. Okay, so for the next part of this episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about, actually a lot about my trip. Uh, I actually went to the site of the World Expo, uh, Expo 70, uh, which is the huge World Fair that had a massive uh, impact on the intermedia arts, uh, science, technology and you know people talk a lot about you know the, this intersection between art and technology and nfts well in 1970 people were really form like formalizing this stuff because we actually built things back then and there was a very sort of like interesting dynamic that was taking place, especially with Taro's famous Tower of the Sun sculpture installation, which is beautiful. I went inside and checked it out, like the protozoa all the way through the dinosaurs. And kind of this, like, you know, it's a spiritual exposition that tried to remind the people, because, you know, there are so many different government organized entities at this, at this expo. And, you know, you had IBM and you just, just massive, uh, technological industry. And it, it, the, it was really interesting because it serves as a reminder that there's still a sort of spiritual component that undergirds all of this. You know, you see this a lot. I know it's kind of a trope now with like alchemy as kind of like the original form of science. You know, you had people like Kant and the initial uh, founders of ontology, Richard Wolff, and people who were sort of investigating uh, systems and schemas with library sciences and how they actually sort of stacked up and created the natural sciences that we know today. And a lot of these philosophers they they really sort of and thinkers and artists of the past they really sort of guided the sciences but there was also a, a pious spiritual dimension to that as well that you saw with uh, sort of like this baroque Protestantism that was you could find in like somebody like Holderland's poetry as well and that comes from like the word itself but also you know, it's really sort of interesting, something that the Native elders, they speak about a lot, which is one of, also in my journey, I was sort of stacking up my experience with Native American cosmology, because, you know, I'm part Indian, it's a big part of my life, it's a big part of my past and my family's life, and Buddhism, and the way in which they sort of see things differently. And one of the things that I've gathered actually a bit is that Native Americans, like this is what the elders, they talk a lot about, that modern concepts today uh, are flourishing with concepts and ideas from the old world, from the indigenous. And even though there was a sort of concerted effort to depose of the people who initially practiced these concepts It still finds themselves like reified in the modern world in a certain way. And there's a really good Walter Benjamin quote uh, that I found that actually speaks to this quite a bit. The ideas are stars. In contrast to the Sun of Revelation, they do not appear in the daylight of history. They are at work in history only invisibly. They shine only into the night of nature. And this really kind of speaks to me a bit, uh, just because, and also to continue that, works of art then may be defined as the models of a nature that awaits no day and thus no judgment day. They are the models of nature that is neither the theater of history nor the dwelling place of mankind, the redeemed night. And... Again, this kind of speaks to a little bit of what Taro was hinting at, as well as this notion that, like, the Western Judeo world had sort of, like, won out because it, you know, it conquered the Native Americans, it conquered many indigenous cultures, uh, but, you know, it's like people, in, like, initially... In when when European colonizers they came to certain places they forbid stuff like tattoos and they also forbid like Polynesian natives to get tattoos. Now we see people have full sleeves everywhere. I remember when I was a kid, it you, only like crazy neo Nazis and gangbangers had face tattoos. Now everybody has fucking tattoos, and this is again this is a form a form of like silent triumph of the night of the kind of culture of the old world, of the indigenous, of indigeneity. And so I'm really sort of fascinated in how these things sort of like propel themselves while the actual people are diminishing, and how these concepts gain even more verticality in our modern and increasingly polysemic world. Now, It's interesting because Japan launched its first rocket into space, I believe, a few months before the World Fair of Expo 70. And I think that has a lot to do with also people's imaginations being opened up. And one of the other things that I noticed, too, is there seems to be in this kind of like hokey uh, I don't know. You could say maybe like naive Western interpretation of Buddhism that there's this very clear delineation uh, between nature and technology and spiritual and spirituality and deities and gods and technology. But the natives are are actually very qu- kind of like different. They're they're different because th- it can't be interpreted that way at all. Because they see it all sort of like cosmologically in the same light. Like they see things that are happening in the modern world, like even if it's a tattoo or two spirit people, as like a kind of return to the old ways of the ancestors as well. So it's almost like they can find that in urban spaces. And I think one of the misconceptions about Native American people actually and Indians is that they want to, you know, just go back and sort of like not be a part of society. Well, the reservations were moved as a way to sort of economically marginalize people outside of society. So a lot of Indians actually want to go to the cities. A lot of them want to explore these things. They want a balance between nature and these things and a preservation of that natural environment that exists in both spaces. Now, obviously, you have like people who are like post-colonialists who went to college and got sort of educated in a certain way to just sort of like, I don't know, uh, kind of uphold this notion that, you know, urbanization is bad, all technologies, growth is bad, industrialization is bad, but an industrialized romanticism, I think, is really sort of important, and it's a great way for us to reclaim our time and also our autonomy from these structures that exist in the world. So with that, I'm going to get a little bit into Expo 70 and a little bit into the World Fair, as well as Taro, uh, Experimental Workshop, a few Intermedia groups that helped actually sort of come up with some of the concepts and structures of Expo 70 and what Expo 70 was, what made it kind of amazing, a little bit suspicious, fascinating, but ultimately, I think, better than what we have today with NFTs and these quote unquote builders effective accelerationism and whatnot, which is basically that we used to build things. And it comes down to simple things like that. We actually used to make things. And I think that's a very sort of important key component to all of this. On February 11th, 1970, Japan launched its first satellite into space, uh, which was called Oshumi, and it was actually, um, this was a month before Expo 70. And even though it was kind of seen as a failure, it did succeed in orbiting the Earth. Uh, a total of 12 times, the satellite lost connection with its station in Kagoshima Prefecture. But it did help enter Japan into the space race, and it became subsequently the fourth country after the USSR... United States and France to release an artificial satellite into successful orbit all on its own. So it was kind of a success, but it was a kind of precursor to this uh, science fiction intrigue and, you know, this plane of infidimensional possibilities surrounding the time of the World Fair. Now, the legacy of Osaka's Expo 70 is very, very complex because 1970 was not far removed from Japan's militaristic uh, joining of the Axis powers with Nazi Germany. So it it was complicated because on one hand, it was presenting itself as, you know, this sort of like harmonious, peaceful, progressive uh, place that was sort of beneficial for all mankind, uh, but it was so closely removed from this period of imperial power that had come to define it through the 1940s and and out through the 50s and 60s even. So it, it was kind of an attempt for Japan to rebrand itself a little bit. And But this kind of added to the complexity, especially when you look at the uh, kind of like governmental lobbying zones and all these other things that partook in the convention itself, as well as, you know, it's very sort of interesting, too, that so many artists uh, were invited as kind of these like test dummies for Expo 70 and the design of it from Jinko and Kobo. And all these sort of like intermediate people, like Hideko Fukushima, uh, Yatsuhiro Yamaguchi, and th- and so there was this really sort of interesting intersection. And this is th- this is kind of why today, when people talk about stuff like the New Right and uh, I don't know, like even leftists or whoever, like any sort of the Soros. If you're left wing, the Soros Center of Contemporary Art, people have this like. You know, they like to laugh this stuff off that in the past, you know, these sort of coercive structures didn't use artists as initial sort of testing grounds or guinea pigs for their kind of like invest through their sort of like, I don't know, ideas about geopolitics and how they shape the world and also social relations, international relations. I think it's a little bit naive to say that that's never happened before because it's actually happened many times. And so when people say, oh, you shouldn't beat this drum too hard, you shouldn't beat it too loud. It's like, well, this is just the sort of domain I operate in. And these are things that I've witnessed and seen actually take place firsthand. So if It goes against a kind of like morality or a sort of set of, you know, because I'm a populist, you know, at the end of the day, like that's that's what I support. I support populism. It doesn't I don't care about labels like left or right. But ultimately, I, I believe in in people's ability to sort of historically determine how they handle capital, how they handle technology and ultimately their their place within history and historicity itself. So I do think it's, it's really kind of an important uh, side note to note that part of this was a sort of rebranding mechanism as well. Now, interestingly enough, Angus Hoon said that the World Fair was a fair for Japan and for Japanese people and a lot of this had to do with the contentions surrounding Japan in the Cold War as well as the space race a lot of the things that were going on in this World Fair actually contrasted with article 9 of Japan's Constitution and article 9 states basically it's a clause uh, that outlaws war as a means to settle an international dispute involving the state and so that constitutional clause came into effect on May 3rd of 1947 following the surrender of Japan in World War II and so this was like kind of like a way for Japan I I'm guessing, to not just sort of like clean up their image, but also make sure that it didn't fall uh, back into this kind of like trap of uh, belligerency. And also, I I mean, a lot of it had to do with the horrors of the uh, bombing of Hiroshima, as well as the fact that Japan at that time had tried to surrender and got— got basically nuked anyway. So it it's it's really sort of an interesting time that they're in just in terms of like this new intersection of art and technology and rebuilding itself during the showa period and and sort of like revamping its image on the world stage. One of the sort of interesting things that were featured at expo 70 was a time capsule which basically was a joint project between the panasonic corporation and the minichi newspapers and it was it took three years of planning research and construction and so the two time capsules identical in every detail were buried adjacent to osaka castle The lower capsule would remain buried for 5,000 years. The upper capsule would be open for the first time in the year 2000 and every 100 years thereafter. So it was supposed to document the aural and visual culture of life in the year 1970 AD. And so each capsule contained approximately 2,000 objects and recorded items that represented the time and heritage and ancestry of that moment through art, literature, and music, and even the ideals and aspirations of people uh, today that are expressed in these written and recorded messages. And so... Every item was treated with the most advanced preservation techniques known to man at this time. Some preservation techniques were devised specifically for this project. The Japanese public, together with scientists and scholars from all over the world, took part in the selection process. And so one of the things that I found personally, once you walk into the Expo 70 site, is it's just Well, the museum first off is incredible. It's at a different portion, sort of, like when you first see the Tower of the Sun, it's just massive. It's like totally beautiful and captivating. And so you sort of get off the train and you get there. And one thing that you notice is that the Tower of the Sun is clearly the sort of symbol of the expo itself. But it was actually sort of a part of the theme pavilion to present the theme of the expo itself, which was progress and harmony for mankind. It was, again, it was a part of Japan's rebranding. The sort of like heavy investment in soft power and technology was really kind of a way for Japan to like flex... You know, even though they had Article 9, they could say, look at what we're still capable of. Like, if we were to sort of, like, rip up or uh, re-amend the Constitution, like, you guys would be fucked. Uh, Because we could potentially develop this technology very fast, or we could use it, like, laundered through one of our allies, which would probably be um, the more... I guess you could say, amenable or uh, plausible usage of this stuff. And so I think it's kind of interesting that uh, Taro Okamoto, he was sort of this like, you know, artist, avant-garde figure person. And all of a sudden, you have this like, this merging, not just With, you know, this, like, quote-unquote intersection of art and technology, but also, like, military and space exploration, and you start to see that these things are actually more deeply connected than meets the eye. And you definitely get that feeling from being there, but it is still, like, really, really inspiring, and it inspired a lot of, like, intermedia art thereafter, even though a lot of people who came from, like, the 1950s school of intermedia art in Japan, had a big hand—actually t- had a hand in designing some of these pavilions, designing some of these, like, really sort of futuristic sculptural objects that just, like, captured everybody's imagination. And I have to say, like, I was really impressed. Like, this stuff—like, I I wish the world just looked like this— and, you know, you could see parts of it actually in Japan's infrastructure. There is still that kind of, like, retrofuturism uh, all over the sort of city, especially in um, Osaka. But I do think America is deeply lacking in this. And this is one of the reasons why I, I prefer Japan, Um Just sort of aesthetically, you know, like, it gives you, like, a lot of material to latch onto for inspiration, and I think that's definitely really important, and it's also very affordable compared to here. You know, Japan has a lot of other issues, though. Um, You know, like, uh, up until recently, public high school wasn't public. It cost money, uh... There's a lot of, you know, there's there's still a lot of interesting things that are taking place there, but I do think what's interesting is the avant-garde artist, Taro Akimoto, was the person who was commissioned to bring all of this to life, and he was appointed the producer of the theme pavilion, and so he thought up this dynamic exhibition space to present the entire theme of the expo. After the closing of the expo, most all of the pavilions were taken down, but the Tower of the Sun was selected for permanent preservation, which was in 1975. Then the doors to the interior were closed for nearly half a century. However, in 2018, it had been restored and reborn as a permanent exhibition. The Tower of the Sun stands at roughly 70 meters with a diameter of around 20 meters at its base and arms that extend about 25 meters. There is nothing able to be seen quite like it in the world, as its odd appearance departs from Western aesthetic conventions as well as Japanese aesthetic traditions. So what exactly is trying to be shown? As the artist himself hasn't said much, we are left scratching our heads in slightly frustrated perplexion. However, concerning the three characteristic faces, there is much to be known. The face of the sun on its belly represents the present, while the golden mask at the apex is the future, and the black sun of its back shows the past. So the black sun is painted on the back of it. And it's... It's actually meant to show kind of like a multi-temporality. And this is one of the things that I've been noticing about, I think, successful art today. And, I you know, I'm a big fan of the new Alicia Crampton album, D, uh, DJE. Uh, it's fucking amazing. And, you know, I think a lot about Alicia Crampton's uh, work in in sort of mixed media, specifically music, you know, obviously probably one of the most universally respected but little known artists today, kind of like, you know, your favorite DJ's favorite artist or something like that. One of those kinds of people. But I do notice that there's like a multi-temporal quality in that it harkens back to sort of like the lost past of like indigeneity uh and as well as something that's like very futuristic but while also harnessing the technology of the times. So it's very sort of omnitemporal. And it gives me a, a sort of similar vibe to the Tower of the Sun. And I think Alicia Krant the they uh their exhibit at Moma You know, had these like, it was this mixed media project that almost looked like it could be a part of any sort of like, I don't know if it's like Maholi Nage or Bauhaus or something like that, definitely not in that style, but you know, like the usage of the mixed media and also the message that it portrays through its content of these various temporal dimensions. I think is really important because it shows that, like, we are people with a past. And I think the sort of autobiographization of everything in art and celebrity has kind of... It's kind of been a bad thing, I think, in reminding us. And I think for a lot of, like, white people, specifically, like, they don't... There's not, like, a whole lot because they're technically... aren't marginalized, but I do think that, you know, in this sort of like, I guess you could say like woke way or whatever, but I do think that there's sort of an ability that we all have to channel our pain, whether it's ancestrally or otherwise, through kind of like uh, a broader kind of artistic expression. And, you know, I think about that a lot because honestly, like since getting uh, back from this trip, I've been pretty ill, and I've been on Twitter lately, and I've been tweeting and tweeting, and it's like, you know, because I, I couldn't record, because my-, my throat was so messed up, because I think I have COVID or something, I'm not sure, but, and I just noticing, I'm like, every time I do this, I'm taking away from something else that really fucking matters, and from something that I can express. And the thing that I want to express that I've been working most on is music. And, you know, music is the most important thing, at least creatively. You know, there's family, there's, you know, obligations, there's spiritual things. But music is, is really sort of like the wordless voice of God to me. And that's, you know, that's sort of where I, that's my kind of like electric church or whatever, and I I, I see it as something that's really important, that's something that I still want to express, and sometimes I worry, you know, like these words, it, it takes away from our ability to sort of like embody our histories, and embody our past, and I think sometimes they can be expressed better ways. And so even though this is a multimedia type of thing with images, music that we make, and, you know, there's a lot of different components. We, we made the video uh, for the future is not what it used to be. But at the same time, it's like, that's the direction I, I, I want to go in. You know, like, opinions are easy. But that, I don't know, there's something... There's something really beautiful about that so i don't want to waste anyone's time either you know like i do feel bad about that at times i'm like you know i guess maybe that's why that's why i i release a lot less episodes now but i try to make them really count and and as good as i possibly can you know and try to speak from the heart and, and do my research and do my homework and actually go to these places and investigate them for myself and see if they stack up. But to get back to that, um, so the creation of 70s Expo-themed pavilions, encompassing structure of the past, future, and present... Okamoto thought that humanity's past, present, and future became one to be born over and over again in the bodies and minds of people. And that's basically all he said about it. And I think that that's a beautiful summarization, and it, it sort of speaks to the, the way of the elders and how they say that so many old world concepts have been reified in the modern age you know even though they don't look like traditional christian uh or sort of like white or whatever but the even things that are seen as as woke or progressive and they've won themselves out you know and so you can't really stake much claim in saying otherwise i I think because we can point to these things to the sort of specters of these uh, cultural mappings, and, and really sort of examine them and look uh, and see and see how they manifest in, in the world today. And I think that's really beautiful. The original concept for the Tower of the Sun, was based around a need for a way to transport spectators to the theme pavilion up into the Grand Roof, which was suspended 30 meters above ground. The functional role of the Tower of the Sun was a vertical passage of escalators connecting the subterranean level exhibition and the mid-air level exhibition. After viewing the subterranean level exhibition, visitors would climb four escalators to a second level corridor and continue onto the interior of the grand roof via a fifth escalator inside the right arm of the tower. So once you go up the slope, you could see the flames of the bowels of the earth and the colonies of these early life forms. And when you when you're sort of in the waiting room, they they show this video, this kind of, like, presentation video, and there's all these Swahili masks and stuff, and, like, it sounds like Les Baxter or something, like, um, or, you know, the Zoroastra theme from, like, 2001 Space Odyssey, but with, like, these sort of, like, haunting voices, and then you have the Tree of Life, which expresses the evolutionary process, and all these different organisms, and then the arms. So I the arms are really sort of fascinating because they're so like mechanical looking and weird. And they have this like escape route that you can sort of like climb up. And, it, and they change these colors. And the colors are with this like hexagonal metallic arm pattern creates like this really sort of amazing psychedelic uh, geometric haze that's really sort of like transfixing and hypnotic in many ways. So you have nautiluses, scorpions, gastropods, jellyfish. All the way up until human beings. And so, the Tree of Life is kind of this history of life, with the age of mammals, reptiles, and fish, and also the age of protozoa. So, basically, in the womb of the Tower of the Sun, an art object without precedence sprouts up from the basement. Conceptualized by Taro Akamoto and stretching 41 meters tall is the giant figure of the tree of life. On a single trunk springing to the heavens, 33 species of living things following the path of evolution, from unicellular organisms to crow magnets, are tightly packed in this original exhibition of which the likes have never before been seen. During the expo, the theme pavilion started with a subterranean level exhibition of the past, the world of mystery, and progressed into this dramatic experience of a space. While riding an escalator, presently stairs, spectators approaching from the basement, soaked in the tale of life, passed down ceaselessly from primordial times at close range. The tree of life evolves simple organisms at the bottom into mammals at the top. However, it does not claim that humans are superior and amoeba are inferior. From the very beginning, blowing up towards the future, the energy of life is shown. The tree of life is a a simple model of biological evolution.